Hello and welcome to the Praise Center Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information, visit PraiseCenterOnline.com. We're continuing today in uh, this series called When Things Go Wrong. And, uh, and so uh, this is the, uh, the second part of what I taught on last week. So the subtitle of this would be, uh, When We Think God Lets Us Down. And so if you turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 19, actually start in verse 10, excuse me, we'll start there. We're going to reread some of the things that we read last week to give us uh, some perspective and uh, that sort of thing. So, so again, what I, what I mentioned last week, and I believe to be true with my whole heart, is when we think God has let us down, uh, or in some way, it's because we have misunderstood God, we've misunderstood Him, and I hope to continue on that track today and help us understand that even further. So we began last week by talking about a couple of false walls that we make that keep us from truly knowing and experiencing God as we should. Last week, we touched on the idea of false walls of accusation, which is blaming God for things he hasn't done, which, uh, by the way, he's got big shoulders and can handle those things. And, uh, but at the same time, I think we've determined that that's kind of wasted energy. And if we're going to get some anger, some righteous anger in our souls, let's go after the, the true cause of our pain, which is uh, both the devil and sin, right? So go after those things. And then uh, the second thing we talked about last week uh, was the, uh, the idea of uh, uh, false, uh, false hope, trusting in the things that we shouldn't trust in sometimes, and we do that from time to time. So today we're going to look at, um, I said that wrong, false understanding was the second one last week. False hope and false gods are what we're going to talk about today. All right, I'll get rolling here in a minute. <laughs> so... Um, again, uh, so we're going to pick it up here in 1 Samuel 4.10. I just want to remind you that the Israelites have gone uh, to war against the Philistines, and it wasn't going well, so they dig out the ark, this box that, that represented the presence of God, and uh, they, they try to use it to defeat the enemy, and this is an abject story of loss and defeat and death and hopelessness. Aren't you excited for this message? Right. So, <laughs> all right, let's get into it then. First uh, Samuel 4.10. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. That same day, a Benjamite ran from the battle and went to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he arrived, there was Eli sitting in his chair by the side of the road, watching because he, his heart feared for the ark of God. When the man entered the town and told what had happened, the whole town set up a, sent up a cry. Eli heard the outcry and asked, what is the meaning of this uproar? The man hurried over to Eli, who was 98 years old and whose eyes had failed so that he could not see. He told Eli, I've just come from the battle line. I fled from it this very day. Eli asked, what happened, my son? The man who brought the news replied, Israel fled before the Philistines. The army has suffered heavy losses, and also your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. Now this is interesting, verse 18. When he mentioned the ark of God, see, of all the things he heard that were terrible that day, but listen to this, when he heard uh, uh, about the ark of God, it says, Eli fell backward off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died, for he was an old man and he was heavy. He had led Israel for 40 years. Now, it goes on with the, the, this, just this terrible 
chain of events that comes out of this. His daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant in near a time of delivery. When she heard the news that the ark of God had been captured, that her, fa- uh, that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she went into labor and gave birth, but was overcome by her labor pains. As she was dying, the women attending her said, Don't despair, you've given birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay attention. She named the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because of the capture of the ark of God and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband. She said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. We're going to read a little bit more text in a little while here, uh, but we're going to stop there and pause there. So we're going to read a few verses out of the beginning of chapter 5. But for a few moments, again, I want to talk about these false walls of, uh, that keep us from uh, what really God has for us. So can we just pray? God, we submit this time to you. We commit our hearts to you. We, we again, as always, want what, the word to be planted on soil that will produce the most fruit. And so even in prayer right now, we ask that our hearts would be uh, open, receptive, and uh, that we would take good care of the word that's planted there in Jesus' name. Amen? <laughs> so uh, speaking of walls, um, at my house, there's a retaining wall out in front of our house there, and it's um, it's uh, was when we first moved in. It's made out of brick, red brick, and it looked it looked nice. It kind of matched our house a little bit. But over time, I get I guess maybe the workers who did it or whoever built it, um, I really don't know. But whoever did it, they I don't think they used the right stuff or whatever. And over time, the brick began to loosen from the mortar, and bricks kept falling off, and eventually, big sections of this retaining a wall fell away now there, behind it there were some cinder blocks so, so there is some solid stuff behind it but the 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 false wall if you will the front the part that looked good the part that was decorative that part fell off and we basically had to just tear it all off and so uh, you can call me lazy if you want and I, I won't get upset but I don't think I'm lazy but I just mostly I couldn't decide what I wanted to do with it I, it, it sat like that for four years. You drive by our house and think, what is wrong with this, these people here, you know? And they're not taking care of their yard, but I just couldn't decide how I wanted to deal with that wall. And I had so many ideas go through my head. And to, well, there probably is some laziness involved because uh, anything like that, you know, is going to be heavy and dealing with bricks and rock. And, and so I just thought, eh, I kept putting it off. Well, uh, this week I was meet. you know, sorry about the mess out here on Spokane Street, okay? Uh, they're going to have this wrapped up in a couple of few weeks here. But uh, anyway, so uh, I was meeting with the contractor because they're communicating with me regularly about, hey, sorry, you're not going to have parking this week, as you figured out if you like to park there. And when they're done, there will actually only be five spaces there instead of eight. So you're always welcome to use the Dogwise parking lot um, and on-street parking. And it's going to be easier to cross the street over here because there's only going to be two lanes of traffic uh, getting across here instead of three. And there's going to be some sort of a, a walk signal too. Cool, right? So that's great. So even parking across the street is in play uh, in, in a lot of ways. So all that to say, I'm talking with this contractor, and we're talking. There's a retaining wall that was built many years ago. I don't know how many years ago. Maybe when this building was built, or when the street was laid. I have no idea. But it's really, really old, and it's all a whole bunch of. It's built out of rock. It's right at the bottom of the alley here between Spokane Street and the alley. And I talked to him about that. I said, "Well, you guys are going to be tearing that out, right?" And he said, "Yeah." And I said, "What are you going to do with all that rock?" You know, these massive like slabs of rock. Okay. And he says, well, uh, we're just going to take it, I think, to the landfill or some, someplace they had to get rid of it. And I said, oh, I said, well, could, you know, wheels, right? You catch where I'm going with this? So the wheels start turning in my head. I said, so could I 
it would be okay if I took some of it, you know, and is that okay? It won't hurt anything? He said, no, yeah, you can take all you want. It just saves us from having to do it. So my son Abraham, who's roaming around here, he's not in the room right now. He's actually taken some video and, uh, uh, for our website and things like that, which I appreciate. But anyway, uh, so this is how, it, you know, in my mind I'm thinking, oh, I'd like to go get that rock, but that's going to be a lot of work. But Abraham had already planned a trip. <laughs> you tracking with me? So, so the... Like practically the moment he walks in the door, I'm like, hey. <laughs> and we chit-chatted a little. I don't want you to think I was all carnal here. But I, I, you've seen Abraham. He's like 6'4", and he's like, you know, he's young. <laughs> so I'm thinking, this is going to be good. So I said, hey, you want to do me a favor? And he says, uh, oh, yeah, what's that? And I said, well, there's this, there's this rock I want to move. And it's going to take a lot, of, a lot of work and a lot of labor because we, we really had to get in with crowbars and dismantle the, the rock out of the wall and pile it in my trailer and drive across, take a couple of trips. So, so we, we decide to do that because, see, I got free rock now and I got free labor. <laughs> this, is, this is the best. So we decide to do that, and we start stacking the rock at my house. I have a, oh, the picture's already there, okay. So that, I don't, that may not look like much to you, but uh, every one of those rocks weighs between 10 and some as much as 100 pounds, and there's, there's I don't know if there's probably 150 of these stones there. So, so it's, a, it's a bigger deal than it actually looks like. And anyway, that was kind of fun, and we're going to build, a, I'm going to build a nice wall there, okay, that'll look beautiful. I believe when I'm done with it, I get this great idea for that. But, but all that to say that, that, um, the, the whole idea of the story is, is if the wall had been done right to begin with, if the builder had built the wall right, then we wouldn't have had to face this dilemma. But, be, but the false wall, that decorative one that was there before, it looked nice, but it had to come down because it wasn't going to last. And, I've, and so I've never done mortar work before, and if anyone out there has and you'd like to give me a lesson, that'd be awesome. But, uh, but, uh, but anyway, as long as that lesson is free, like my son's help, and the rock. <laughs> but we're going to tear down a couple more walls today and, take, and move into the beauty of what God has for us uh, and he, what he wants to build in our life to replace things that haven't been right for us. Does that make sense? You with me? So let's talk first about this false understanding, the idea of false understanding. The Israelites thought that the ark, we kind of talked about this a little last week, they thought the ark was the presence of God right? They thought, oh, that's, that's God, you know? And I, I, I said it this way, they, they, in a sense, they put God in a box, and they thought God was in that box. And that was a terrible misunderstanding on their part. So they bring, they thought it was also a guarantee of victory. Hey, we bring this into battle, we win. But, but the Philistines, they were concerned that the ark had been brought in and that there's all this shouting, and they, they shouted so loud that the ground shook. And the Philistines were concerned about it, but they didn't see it as a sure sign of victory. They got their stuff together and said, no, let's go after this. So the Israelite army loses 30,000 uh, soldiers and the ark. Eli hears of the death of his sons, and then he hears of the loss of the ark, and that's the thing that causes him to react in such a violent way that he falls backward and dies. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's telling to me because his sons had been such troublemakers that he's more worried about the ark than he is about his sons. Are you with me? So this is an interesting dynamic in their family and, uh, that's going on there. And we get the impression that he feels all is lost at that moment. 
that because the ark is gone now. And, and I'm not saying that the ark wasn't a big deal. I mean, it was, it was a big deal. But I believe that Eli had misunderstood God at this point because, because not only have the army put their hope in, in that bo- God in a box idea that God's in that or that somehow that guaranteed victory, but apparently Eli has as well and he sees that all hope is lost. Do you know that our God transcends the boxes we put him in? right? So this is what we're talking about today is get past that. That's a false understanding to think that God is limited in some way. Our God is not limited, folks. Let's just dig into that and let's go after that with an understanding today. And then, of course, this, uh, the, the, daughter of, or, uh, the daughter-in-law of Eli, the wife of Phineas, she has the baby early. She goes into early labor because she also has put God in that box thinking, well, if the ark's gone, you know, because it mentions the ark is gone and that's a big deal. And so she thinks all is lost. And she, she says, she names her child as she's dying. She says, his name is Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. Now, could you imagine being a kid and getting raised, right? And you go to school for the first time and you say, what's your name? My name's the glory has departed. Oh, right. You're like, ah, oh, what a terrible name. What a sad name, right? And you can't even go with a shortened version of it because Ick isn't going to work either. There's no nickname that works with that, right? So, so, so these are sad stories. But again, the saddest thing, in my estimation, looking back now, is that they thought God was in that box or that they didn't understand that the box is really just a picture of who God is and his mercy and his love and, and his covering over them. So Samuel will later straighten this whole thing out in, in a verse in 1 Samuel 15, 29. He says, he, speaking of God, who is the glory of Israel, does not lie or change his mind, for he's not a man that he should change his mind. He, the glory has not departed. Uh, this is the point I'm trying to make. The glory has not departed. That was what they thought. God is the glory of Israel. And so the glory had not departed. The glory was still there, right? Uh, and uh, so, so uh, God can take care of the box. He'll, he'll, there's some, you'll see in a moment, there's, there's really some actually kind of humorous things that happen after the ark has been stolen. But anyway, so, um, so, so there's, this, uh, there's one other misunderstanding I think we should point out in the, at the beginning of this chapter, which we didn't read, and, but I mentioned it a moment ago. When the ark came into the Israelite camp, they lifted up a mighty shout, and the ground shook, which is great. And, uh, and so uh, that's an incredible thing. But listen, I don't know if you know this or not, but you happen to be in a Pentecostal church here. I don't want that to scare anybody, but yeah, that's okay. Yeah, let's go for it. And uh, Pentecostal isn't a bad thing. Um, It just means we believe that the same kinds of things that happened in Acts chapter 2, where the, the Holy Spirit came upon individuals, they were baptized in and filled with the Holy Spirit, and also gifts of the Spirit began to be manifest in and specifically that day, uh, the gift of speaking in other languages, or sometimes they're called tongues. But we believe in all that. We practice that kind of stuff here. Uh, fair warning, that's the kind of church you're in. If you didn't know, I'm sorry, we try to get the word out. But, you know, that's what we are. And, uh, but, you know, and we, because we believe that everything that God gave to the church, the early church, has not been cut off or stopped in any way, but it's continuing to this day. In fact, today is uh, uh, Pentecost Sunday. I don't know if anybody happens to know that. It's not something we generally sell. Celebrate, uh, but it is it's based on a Hebrew uh, festival, but it's become kind of a tradition in the church that this is the this would be the day 
that is 50 days from Passover, which would be the day that the Spirit was poured out on the church. So that all relates to when we had Easter a few weeks back. You tracking with me? Okay. So, so this is the day of, the, of Pentecost Sunday. So we believe in that stuff. And so part of being Pentecostal, and you, maybe the first time you came in here, you were used to a little bit more subdued things, and you heard a few people maybe shouting or singing loud, or sing hallelujah. The pastor's up there, you know, acting like a little uh, bit crazed sometimes, and you're like, come on, let's shout out and you think wow i just haven't been around this but that's that is part and parcel of what pentecostals do we're not afraid to express ourselves all right and go after it in worship and just just you know love god fully where where not only is our mind involved and our voice but our voice gets raised and we're just energetic about it that's all part of it and so but here's the thing as pentecostals that we need to understand is that volume in itself does not necessarily mean that you've, you have the presence of God in some way, right? Sometimes we could just be shouting and nothing's happening. And that's what I think the Israelites were doing. By the way, though, silence and solitude don't necessarily in, have, indicate the presence of God either, right? There, I went to a meeting once where a pastor got up. It was a group of pastors there and ministers, and he said, he said the sound of heaven is silence. And I thought, I've never heard anybody say that before. And I thought, that's, that's an odd statement for him to make. And then I, I, immediately I remembered that, that it says that in the book of Revelation. And this is what it says. It says, there was silence in heaven. Anybody remember the rest? For about a half an hour. What does that tell you? <laughs> What's going on the rest of the time, you know? So, so there are times for silence. There are times to still our hearts, be still and know that I'm God. All that's good. And, and we need to be sensitive to the Spirit in whichever way God would lead us. But, but hear me, there is something powerful about raising our voices and getting after it. But don't think just because you got loud that God's going to necessarily do or show up, right? Okay, I just want to make sure that's clear because, listen, the, when, the, when, when it came time for Jericho's walls to come down, they marched around the city, and the final thing they did before the walls actually came down is what did they do? They lifted up a shout. So, so that's what we're after when we're shouting. We want the presence of God. We want to shout at the right time when he has us to, and when we do, we want to come with expectations that some walls are going to fall down in Jesus' name. So, so um, but the... But the so the messenger tells the news, he comes to the city, and now there's another great uproar, if you will, another shout of like, but this time it's wailing and sadness, and Eli could hear it. But the glory had already departed from Israel, not because of the ark, but because of their sin. Do you remember? We talked about this last week, the sins of commission and the sins of omission. The sins of commission were what uh, Eli, the sons of Eli were doing, and they were, they were treating the offering with contempt, sleeping with women that weren't their wives at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And then Eli did sins of uh, omission in the fact that he did not talk to his sons and settle them down and say, come on, you, you need to toe the line here. And he let them go. So, so one of the most important things we must do when we come to Christ, every one of us have to go through this step, is we have to come to a place of repentance, right? Right? Before we can get to the place where we can say, come be my Savior, come be my Lord, we have to say in that moment, I realize I have sinned and God, I need to be forgiven of that sin. So it always starts with this idea of repentance and turning away from sin. It's, that's what repentance means. It means making a decision, but also there's, a there's like a physical um, picture, if you will, of a, of a 
choice we're making to turn 180 degrees away from the things we've been pursuing to the pursuit of God. That's what repentance is about. It's another way to say it. It's uh, with garden, the Garden of Eden. They, they took the fruit off the tree and said, I, I choose right and wrong for myself. That's what they were doing when they took that fruit. And repentance is this, putting the fruit back on the tree <laughs> and saying, God, I give you the right to choose what's right and wrong in my life. That's really what repentance is. So that's what we're after when we come uh, to a place of repentance, turning from our sin. And as, even as we become believers, understand that we have to keep regularly repenting, not for salvation, but to keep things clear. You know, like if I have an argument with Rhonda, I need to clear the air with her, right? You know, if, I've done, if I've offended her in some way, I need to go. Well, I can guarantee in our relationship with God, God is not doing the offending, so if there's a problem in our relationship, he's not, he's not gone away from us. He's standing right there waiting. But we just have to clear the air because we are the ones that have messed up. And so the need is on our part for our good to repent. I heard a story about a trial that had been going on for three days, and the man is accused of committing uh, these crimes. And he stood up, and he approached the judge's bench. And he said, Your Honor, I'd like to change my plea from not guilty to guilty. And, uh, and then the judge was upset. He says, he says, if you're guilty, why didn't you tell us in the first place? Why did you make us go through all this, a lot of time and inconvenience? And he, and, and he looked up at the judge and he said, well, when the trial started, I thought I was innocent. But when I heard all the evidence against me, and sometimes, right? Sometimes I think we, we can go around kind of deluded and think, oh, I'm innocent, I'm innocent. And then, but then when the truth is explained to us, right, through the word, we read the word or we hear it preached, and all of a sudden we go, ah, I, gotta, I, gotta, yeah, I am guilty, but I need to take care of it in Jesus' name. So yes, and that's what Christ did by giving us this opportunity to believe in him, gave us an opportunity to be declared not guilty because he took our sin if we'll be repenting. So let's get honest and tear down any walls of false understanding, Right? And then finally, our last thing is this, tear down the walls of false gods. Let's go back to the scripture uh, and uh, here again in chapter 5 now, we'll read 1 through 5. So after the Philistines had captured the ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. Uh, Dagon, it was a god that the Philistines worshipped. It was one of their primary deities. It, he it was made of stone. Uh, he had the appearance of a man, but also of a fish, kind of a merman, if you will. Um, no, seriously, this is, this is true. So uh, that's Dagon. So they carried him in and sort of as like a trophy. And also they figured... You know, maybe they could worship both gods or something. They just thought there's probably something to this ark. It's a cool thing. This is what the Israelites worship, obviously. Wrong, but, they're, but that's what they thought. So, so verse 3 now. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. Every knee will bow, right? Bam, down. But the, uh, so they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon falling on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord, and his head and his hands had been broken off. So this is very significant here. God, nothing can stand before our God. 
And then, uh, and so uh, head and hand had been broken off or lying on the threshold, only his body remained. That is why to this day, neither the priest of Dagon nor any others who entered Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. That became kind of like, ooh, that's taboo. The, the hands were there or whatever, so they don't do that. But the Philistines are excited initially. They think their, their capture of the ark will guarantee their success and continued victory. They also think that God is in that box like like the Israelites apparently did. And, uh, but but they're, when I say God, for them, it's a small g. It's not the God of the universe. They're thinking, they're just adding to their collection. So the ark would have been placed in the temple, their temple, to indicate that Israel's God was now defeated and, and in some ways a prisoner of Dagon. So, so this is kind of what, that, what that's all about. Dagon is this, this weird, like I say, a half-fish, half-man uh, idol thing. And so, so they put the ark in the temple of Dagon, figuring that they could go after both. But here's the thing. You can't worship two masters, the Bible says. You can't, have, you can't split it up. And so Dagon hasn't got a chance before the living God. He's simply made of stone, but we serve a living God. In Psalm 135, verses 5 through, or 15 through 18, it says this, The idols of the nations are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, nor is their breath in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. So this idol can't stand before God. No, no other God can stand before him. They aren't really real gods anyway. Uh, to, be, to begin with. But, but so just as this false God falls before the living God, again, every knee will bow. Do you understand that even people who curse God, who don't believe in God that day, it, eventually every knee will bow before Jesus Christ. Every knee, according to the Bible. And, uh, and I guess the thing comes down to, do you choose to make that sacrifice now and bow before him now, bow the knee, meaning come to him and have, find salvation? You know, you can do that in this life. Or come into eternity and by the very presence of God be forced on to your knees because you come to the realization, oh, he really was God after all. And that's not where we want anybody to end up. That's not where God wants anyone to end up. But no one can stand against our God. No one can stand against Jesus Christ. So we look at these false gods and these ancient peoples and we start to think, ah, that's, that's old stuff. We don't go there. That's not us. But yet, we do the same thing in different ways. We regularly fill our lives with substitutes for God, don't we? We, we, we use pleasure, wealth, fame, entertainment, hobbies, sports, sex, drugs, alcohol, pornography. You know, just keep making a list there, right? Anything and everything that we end up idolizing. Uh, and can I just say, sometimes we even idolize ourselves, can I just say that sometimes, you, you know, and I, I don't want to step on any toes, so pull them back right now as I walk through the aisle, but, but sometimes even the amount of selfies and things, it's sort of like there's sort of an idolizing of self in those. In, I'm not saying selfies are inherently evil, but, but you understand, sometimes people just go overboard, and this is what I'm talking about. It's like you can tell that the thing they're most proud of in their life is their own image. That's a very frightening place to be. So don't stop doing selfies, just make sure your heart's right. Okay. Even our cell phones, which is a funny word to call them phones anymore, isn't it? I've, I've come to, describe, to think that phone is the least I use my, my device for. Is that true? Right? I, I mean, it does so many things, but, but they've become kind of idolatrous to us. We're very focused on them. We spend a tremendous amount of time looking at them and, and doing things with them. And we just we become kind of wrapped up. And some of our image is wrapped up in the device that we actually have. 
Uh, there's a brother in our church, I won't tell, tell you who he is, but I love this guy because he, he has this flip phone, his old flip phone. He brings it out. And it's like, yes, you're my hero. I wish I could go back to that. I actually saw something in the news last night. Some company's offering, anybody see this? $1,000 to somebody who will uh, trade their smartphone for a, uh, did you see that? Yeah, trade their smartphone for a flip phone for a week is all you had to do it. I don't know what, yeah, it was, yeah I would do that. But uh, anyway, 1000 bucks, sure. Um, Last summer, a group of men in our church uh, read the book um, Killing Kryptonite by John Bevere. I want to read to you. It'll be up on the screen. I hope uh, that the quote from him uh, out of that book, this is what John Bevere says. He says, we are the ones who make the idol, and it is not always made with stone, wood, or precious metal. The idol's power lies within our hearts. An idol can be anything we put before God in our life. It is what we love, like, trust, desire, or give our attention to more than the Lord. Idolatry, boy, this, uh, this actually, he, uh, you see there's a little dashed line there. I left out the part, but I'll just tell it to you. This is actually a quote from his wife, uh, Lisa Bevere, that he included in this description. He says this, but this is what she says. Idolatry is what you draw your strength from or give your strength to. Wow. And that could cover so many things if we're not careful, right? So when we're looking for fulfillment or gratification uh, outside of obedience to God, not that other parts of life can't be gratifying, but if that's where we're finding our identity, if that's what we're looking to in a way that we lean on that rather than on God, we've begun the journey toward idolatry. The first and second commandments are very familiar to us, I'm sure. The first one, of course, is you shall have no other gods before me. That's really the subject we're talking about. And, uh, but when it says you shall have no other gods, it's, of course, with a small g there. And uh, there are no other true gods besides God, but things we make God. And then, uh, and then and we can make a god out of anything right? It, do, it doesn't have to be a, an idol as we think of it. But the second uh, commandment is the one that gets more specific. And he, then he says, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath the water or in the waters below. So that covers Dagon, whether he was man or fish, we don't know, but whatever he was, he's covered in all respects. But then he goes on and he says, you shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, a jealous God. Now, when you hear the word jealous and think about God, and I think, don't we tend to think jealousy is a negative attribute? Don't we tend to think that? Okay. But, 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 but I just want to maybe help us understand what it means when he says he is jealous. Back in 1985, Rhonda and I moved down to Los Angeles. I was uh, going to finish up Bible college, and uh, we, we spent a whole year down there as a married couple. And uh, if you know Rhonda, she loves to play all kinds of sports. Now she's into golf. Back then it was uh, softball. She was really into softball. And she got on a fast pitch league. And so with, with a group of ladies from our church that we were attending while we were there. And so we got to know these people in this church really quickly. We, we, we felt like family right away with them. I mean, we dove in. You know, we were, were not the type to hang back anyway, but we jumped in. So we began to know people and be involved. And so, so anyway, a lot of people from the church would come and watch these, these different leagues. And she played on a fast pitch and a slow pitch league at the same time. I don't know how she did that. But anyway, but, the, but there was especially the fast pitch. There was one guy from the church that came who was about our age and, and nice guy, very good looking guy. And uh, so he shows up to these games. And, and one time uh, he came up to me after he had been to a few of these games and uh, he, was very, he was very much into sports also. He also played on a, a different softball league. Uh, and uh, he comes up to me and he just says, hey, I got a question for you. I said, what's that? He says, um, does Rhonda have any sisters? Now, that seems innocent enough. 
But I'm, you know, I'm not as dumb as a complete bag of rocks, you know, I've got to, but I kind of read between the lines, oh, you like what you see, don't you? I mean, he liked the fact that she was into sports and, you know, and uh, he thought, because he was an unmarried guy. And I'm thinking, oh, you know. So, so like, immediately, I felt jealousy rise up, up within me. Are you with me on this? Does that make sense? And, um, and let's just say from then on, I went to the rest of Rhonda's games. Let's just, let's just put that out on the table. Because I had missed a few before that, but... But here's the deal about jealousy. If I see another man uh, begin to flirt with my wife, uh, especially if, especially, and never, she would never do this, but if, especially if she began to return those, uh, you know, those uh, affections, if you will, with somebody else, I would be jealous. I would be jealous. And that would be righteous jealousy, wouldn't it? Right? It would be a right kind of jealousy. But listen, the motivation for my jealousy is that, that I love her and don't want to lose her to someone else. I, don't wanna, I love her and I don't desire to lose her. Does that make sense? God, listen, God feels the same way about you. He loves you desperately. You are precious to Him. You are loved by Him. And, and He feels, he's, we sing a song, and, but He's madly in love with you. And so when he sees us and our affections begin to be drawn away to something else that we're, we're more interested in than him, he begins to be jealous. You understand? And it's a righteous jealousy. It's a beautiful kind of jealousy. It's a jealousy that says, I love you so desperately, it bothers me that we're not in the kind of relationship that we ought to be in. That's what God is saying when he says that he is a jealous God. He rises up with holy jealousy for us. And so we have to examine our hearts today in this moment, and we're really landing this airplane right now. In fact, worship team, you can come on up. But I want to ask you this question. Are, are we putting anything ahead of God in our lives? Anything. Just ask yourself that question internally right now. Are, are, are we, listen, let me explain it further. Are we delighting in, trusting in, giving our time to anything that is taking his place? Has some other lover, in a sense, come and tried to woo us away from the lover of our souls? If the answer is yes in any way, it's time for us to bring down that wall of false gods in our life because they can get in the way big time. Matthew Henry, a great scholar and commentator, writes that the kingdom of Satan will certainly fall before the kingdom of Christ. Error before truth, profaneness before godliness, and corruption before grace in the hearts of the faithful. It's coming down. The walls are coming down in Jesus' name. People will fail us. Kingdoms will fail institutions will fail. Even some of the institutions of the church, listen, I don't mean the church of the living God, I don't mean the, the body of Christ, but the, sometimes what we think of as church, right? People have been hurt by church. We all get that. And I hope that hasn't happened to anybody here. Uh, that's not our, our, our intention, some of it. But sometimes churches have done some stupid things. I'm just going to be real with you. Like just dumb stuff that has hurt people. So, so all of that stuff, kind of, we can't put our trust in any of those institutions. We have to put our trust in God alone, right? Does that make sense? And again, let me reiterate, when we think, when we think God has let us down, we must understand that He's not at fault. He's not, his, the Bible says His arm is in short. He's not withholding anything from us. So how many would agree with me and say, let's let the walls fall down today in Jesus' name. Let the walls fall down. So let me cover all four of these again, last week's and this week. Have there been walls of false accusations against God? False hope? Things you've hoped in that 
didn't pan out. False understandings or false gods in our lives. And again, mentioning Jericho. In fact, let's stand together right now. Let's take a page from the story of Jericho, if you will, with me. And, and we're going to lift up a mighty shout to God in a moment. In so doing, we're choosing to remove the walls, but also choosing to receive what God has promised us. Amen? Thank you for listening to Praise Center Sermon of the Week. Don't forget, for more information, visit PraiseCenterOnline.com.